Welcome to the 464th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thanks for listening. I'm getting an early one out because I'm expecting my second grandchild any day. So got to be on the podcast on top of things. Don't want to miss a week. I am slowly ramping up my running volume, uh, still nice and easy, kind of nursing a little bit of ankle tendonitis from the Cold Creek State Park muddy mud fest, but uh, getting better, getting better every day, um, doing some strength work. I am, again, committed to this Leadville, going to give it my best shot, and um, so every day counts. So running, strength training, yoga, stretching, mobility, the whole nine yards, and of course, nutrition. As you go up in the age categories, the number of people competing in races starts to dwindle. And often people are asked, so how many people were in your age group? And the older you get, the fewer you are, fewer that there are. And does that mean that they can't run? They don't want to run? They're too smart to run? Um, They've had it because they've run too much? I don't know. But I do know that there are people in the age groups, and it can be done. And it's all about your attitude. And I talked before uh, about the experience, and, you know, after a certain point, it's all between the years. And so much of life is between the years. This is Heart Month, February, and there was a study about between the years, kind of. But basically, it was about the attitude in the pathogenesis of cardiovascular disease over life, or how long you live. And the article talks about that some attitudes probably develop in childhood and are kind of set by early adulthood. And might ultimately be responsible for a substantial portion of the cardiovascular disease that is experienced because of attitude. However, that being said, there are multiple areas where you can use your attitude to modify targets for primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So if your attitude has a lot to do with whether or not you get cardiovascular disease and you die from it, then should we not be focusing more on our attitudes for our not only mental well-being, but for our cardiac well-being? The study goes on to talk about optimism versus pessimism versus a cynical hostility um, could be linked to total mortality and cardiovascular disease. This appears to be worse for women. They looked at um, a group of people and looked at questionnaires um, dealing with how optimistic you are, pessimistic uh, one is, and they showed that being optimistic, uh, or they correlated that being optimistic uh, resulted in a 99% reduction in the risk for coronary artery disease and a 14% reduction in mortality. If you were more cynical, and especially if you were somewhat hostile, uh, that resulted in a 16% increase in mortality. 
they looked at this with twins and looking at the possible hereditary effect of your personality and found that that accounted for about 24 to 29%. So the good news is your genetic makeup uh, is a no more responsible for your mental outlook on life than perhaps anything else. And we all know that we can turn genes on and turn genes off. So to go down the road of blaming your genetic predisposition um, probably will result in loss of your ability to change your cardiovascular outcome. So how do you think that your attitude affects your heart disease? Well, lifestyle choices such as whether you're active or you're not active, if you see yourself um, not being able to play sports or not being able to do certain activities versus nutritional choices uh, because you believe that nothing helps, nothing will help, um, or that your lot in life is such that you don't have the ability to do such things. There's also an autonomic dysfunction association because um, we know also that attitude affects blood pressure and cortisol levels. So as well as inflammatory markers, um, there's even a study looking at telomeres. So the end caps on your genes are shorter if you live a life of hostility and pessimism. Insulin resistance increases. So does the ability of uh, your blood to clot. So clotting problems and um, thrombosis can be affected by your autonomic nervous system. So whether or not your, um, you know, your sympathetic tone is on and your blood pressure is up and you're all inflamed versus parasympathetic, you know, life is great, you're nice and, you know, nice and relaxed and calm, or even the ability to have these gears because we're not all going to be one way or the other. But those people that reside, reside most of their life up towards the high sympathetic tone uh, are going to have the most problems. So the question is, can you change your attitude? Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Or can you train your attitude? Because I believe that it does take practice, especially now that I have been in a situation where um, my attitude was really tested. So ultimately, I believe that you can change your overall cardiovascular risk by changing your attitude. And obviously, practicing that when everything is good and easy is a way to get started. But again, you know, everything is easy to do when life is not throwing a bunch of stressors at you. But perhaps you could start with, or we could start with little things, you know, how you deal with traffic, how you look at the guy that cut you off. Do you look at him as, you know, some uh, person that doesn't care about anybody but himself or perhaps somebody that's um, maybe having an awful day or doesn't feel well or perhaps is elderly. Um, so looking at people with compassion can also change your attitude. There's a story of a very successful speed skater uh, who ultimately won the Olympics in an event that he hated. And he had tried for many years to win uh, the event that he, think, that he thought he liked. And it wasn't until he got a new coach and, and the coach you know, said, you know, you really are talented in this longer event. 
And ultimately, I believe that guy's name is Jansen, um, and it was in the Olympics probably in the 90s. I'll have to check. But um, And there's a really good story about him as well. But he started with his sports psychologist every day writing at the top of his page, I love the 1,000-meter event. And he ultimately, over time, that became his event. Uh, people do it with cold therapy. They, you know, you can, you tell yourself, I don't like the cold. Um, I don't like the cold. But then you can change your perspective as far as how you deal with it and what's good about it. And, uh, you know, again, changing your attitude on, uh, on things that you don't really have much control over. You have a choice to have a positive mental attitude with regards to them or a negative mental attitude. So the next time something is out of your control, you know, take for a minute and see if you can choose what kind of attitude you have or spin it around. My dad used to say that every day is not going to be a good day. But then again, there's something good in every day. Some people think they hate to cook because they just don't have much experience with it. Those same people may be very creative in another aspect of their life. So when they perhaps start to present what they cook in a nice or a pretty or a creative manner, that can change the whole outlook of why you're cooking. If you start to look at being the caregiver of your family versus I have to cook for my family, providing the nutrition, being the CEO of nutrition for the household, it takes on a different light than I just have to get food on the table and get everybody fed. This attitude um, study kind of leads me into the next study where they looked at morbidly obese people, mainly women, and looked over a five-year period whether blood pressure medicines versus blood pressure medicines and bariatric surgery would either cure them or decrease the number of medications that they ultimately needed. When they looked at um, the, it was predominantly women, 76% were female, um, they were 43.8 plus or minus nine years. So, you know, in that spot of life where people tend to gain weight, the body mass index average was 36.2 plus or minus 2.7. A body mass index over 30 is considered obese. A body mass index over 35 is considered morbidly obese. An example of this would be a five-foot person would weigh 195 pounds to have a body mass index over 35 Five foot six, she weighed 225 pounds. Five foot ten, about 250 pounds. So these people are significantly overweight. But when when the word morbidly obese comes to mind, this is you know not you know we're not talking 300, 400 pounds. Um, a body mass index of um, 28 uh, is down to five points or a five point. A five foot six person would weigh 175 pounds. A five foot ten person would weigh 200 pounds. A normal body mass index is less than 24.8, greater than 18.6. So they took these people, and they to qualify for the study, they had to be morbidly obese, and they had to be on at least two blood pressure medicines, and no more than three. 
And then they randomized them to either getting bariatric surgery and continuing medication or just medication, and they followed them for five years. The bariatric surgery that they did was called a RUIN-Y, and that uh, procedure used to be done for uh, people with cancer. So they cut the bottom half of the stomach off or the bottom portion of the stomach off, and they bring part of the intestine up and hook it back on. So they bypass part of the stomach, part of the intestine. So you cut off uh, a substantial portion of the digestive tract, you alter people's ability to absorb nutrients. Um, and of course, their stomach size is very small and tends to dump quickly. So these people often have trouble. Um, it can have you know profound diarrhea because they just can't absorb and produce the enzymes that they need in such a short space. So 50 women had, or 50% of the people had the Ruan-Y plus continued their medications and 50 people just continued the medications. At five years, there were 32 people left in the follow-up of just the medication. 13.7% of them or, um, had, had a 30% reduction in the medication that they need. 2.4% of them um, were called no longer hypertensive by being controlled on their medication, and, that, and they still were on 2.97 medications. So, and their BMI maintained at 36.7. So essentially, their weight didn't change. Um, only thing that they followed them for five years on blood pressure medicine, plus or minus titration, and uh, there was a little bit of success. Not surprising. In the Ruan Y group, plus blood pressure medicines, 80.7% of the people had a 30% reduction in the need for blood pressure medicines to get them to a blood pressure of 140 over 90. 46.9% of them no longer needed blood pressure medicines. And the average uh, of those 32 were on 0.8 medications, and their body mass index went down to 28.1. If you remember, a minute ago I said 28.1 is still overweight, not obese. So it's kind of there in the middle but yet they had a marked reduction in the need for blood pressure medication. So what does this tell us? First thing it tells us is that blood pressure medicines don't really work very well. Now do they? 13% of the time. If you went back to my positive mental attitude study, you're getting up to 14% reduction in mortality. So this blood pressure medicine deal, you know, multiple medications, not to mention we haven't even talked about potential side effects, just doesn't really work very well. It probably kept them alive for five years, maybe kept them without having a stroke or decreased the incidence a little bit, but for the most part, no change. What it told us with a bariatric surgery is that they couldn't consume as many calories and therefore they lost weight. They probably had less salt intake and fat intake as well because of the lowered consumption of food. So even if it was the exact same thing, but they reduced the quantity of it, they also had a total loss in calories. So weight loss, but the amount of food they ate resulted in a significant reduction in their blood pressure. My take-home message for that is fabulous, fabulous. Because if you can lose weight, then you can reverse your blood pressure. And we say it all the time. 
if you're a, if you're consuming a diet that is leading you to have high blood pressure by changing that diet, even if you just restrict it, you're going to make progress. Just think if those people were on a whole food plant-based diet, what they would have achieved. And perhaps as quickly, and perhaps, well, without having to have the surgery. A ruin why surgical bariatric surgery is a major abdominal surgery. Major abdominal surgery means you cut all the way down to the intestine. You're altering the native GI anatomy. You're decreasing the ability to absorb nutrients and calories. There's a risk of adhesions. There's a risk of operative mortality. There's a risk of operative cardiovascular events. So it's not by a risk of anesthesia. It's by far not something to be taken lightly. Risk of infection, because early on when the people are, you know, hernias uh, are an often side effect. So the surgery itself may result in more surgeries down the road for either hernias or um, adhesions or soft tissue damage and, and what have you. So major risk, good benefit. But the bottom line is reducing the weight, reducing, changing the nutrition has a profound effect on blood pressure. How many people do you think change their story, change what they believe themselves to be or their attitudes with surgery versus if they had successful weight loss by changing their nutrition. You survived a surgery, you're eating the same foods, the weight is coming off, your story is supported that it's not under your control, that you had to have an operation to change your outcome. On the other hand, cutting your intake Changing your nutrition, exercising is very, very hard and time-consuming. It's like an ultra. It's a long, drawn-out affair to go from 225 down to 185 or 200 down to 175. It's, it's a, it takes a while. There are setbacks. There are complications. There are temptations. There's... The, to the thought that, you, you know, it's not possible. But the prize is the health benefits that you see with weight loss, the decrease in medic medications, but ultimately it's the change in mental attitude. You've accomplished something that was very, very hard, and you did it, and you did it over time. You stuck with it, and you did it. There's nothing... I would think much more empowering. People say when you do an Ironman or you do an ultra, it's a life-changing experience because it's something that you weren't sure that you could do. It pushed you to your limits. It took all that you had. You spent months training for it, put it all on the line with everybody watching, and you accomplished it. It's an empowerment that if you put your mind to something, you can do hard things. This is no different. 
if you put your mind to it and you focus on the details, the nutrition, the exercise, the day in and day out consistency, you can do hard things. The attitude that has to change, the story that has to change is that I've always been like this, my whole family's like this, people say I'm like this, I don't like to exercise, I'm not that kind of person, I don't like to cook, I'm a picky eater, on and on and on. That attitude has to change before any of that other things can fall into place. In the era of Ozempic and bariatric surgery, people t are told that they're a victim, that they have a disease, that they have a mental illness, that their brain is not functioning, their, their GI tract is not functioning right, and the only way that it's going to be fixed if they have a surgical procedure or take a pill for the rest of their lives. It is not true. It's not even the easy way out. There might be some early benefits, but a fair majority of people that have bariatric surgery fall back into the same habits that they were, um, not changing their nutrition, not exercising, gain the weight back. You see it over and over again. At best, they stabilize. The ozempic fallout is just starting to happen with gastroparesis, increased suicide, increased depression, um, dependence on the medication, intestinal dysfunction, and possible cancers along the way. So these people stay in the medical patient side of things. They're not cured. They're in a medical establishment that they need to be taken care of and they need to be dependent upon something else because they have no power to change things on their own. They have no hope. Hope has actually been taken away from these people. Life is uncertain. We all know it. It's probably cliche. But no matter how much we think we know what the future holds, there's always going to be a surprise. There's always going to be a twist, a setback, Something's uncertain. We don't know how it's going to play out. Some people love the thrill of not knowing. They run to it. Um, they embrace the challenge of not knowing whether they're going to achieve what they set out to or the uncertainty about what the future will bring or what some, how something will play out. And other people really need to feel that they have a handle on what's going to happen before they put their toe in the water and give something a try. Am I really going to be able to lose weight doing this? Because if I am, I'll try. And how long will it take? And what do I need to do exactly? And, you know, promise me this. Uh, so they want to promise. The reality of it is there are no promises. But it's the perception that things are going to be okay that make these people tend to go ahead with the uncertainty of the future. The people that embrace uncertainty tend to be the people with the positive mental attitude. I've got 30 seconds. I can still win. Um, I can still make it. What do I have to do? They're the people that pick up the pace, find the energy from somewhere, continue to struggle despite all the setbacks from whatever treatment that they've had, continue to persevere despite all the nasty side effects that life may have been thrown at them where the people with a less positive attitude or more pessimistic may say, see, I told you it was going to happen, so there's no reason to throw my foot into this, throw my hat into the ring, because look what bad things could possibly happen. There's always something you can do. There's always something you can do to affect the process. 
it may not necessarily be the right thing at first, but it's all, there's always something you can do to get things started or to make things a little better, perhaps. So if we start with a small change like breakfast, a lot of people say they don't have time for breakfast. I just run out. I grab a Coke. Uh, I grab a sandwich along the way, um, stop at Starbucks and get a breakfast stand sandwich and a, and a drink, or I make a smoothie and go out the door. Um, the kids may be given a Pop-Tart to go or something quick. Um, you see the scenario, it's often played out on TV, but it's reality is people are fighting, hurry, 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 somebody's not getting ready, it's a disaster in the morning, nobody really gets a good meal, everybody leaves under stressful situation. What if we set our clocks back just a little and people went to bed a little bit earlier, got their circadian rhythm back, got up just a little bit earlier so they could actually fix a breakfast and not be stressed for time and actually take time to have a pleasant experience in the morning before they rushed out the door. How would that change the day? It sets you up for success. It fuels your brain. You're ready to perform. You have some, you know, your sugars, your tank's not low. Uh, you're not going to just give yourself a sugar high only to plummet in an hour. You're not going to be snacking all mid-morning, being grazing because the smoothie that you drank is gone in about an hour as far as feeling full. Your blood pressure is not spiking because of the high sodium of that bacon, cheese, egg sandwich. Your intestinal tract's going to work because now you're going to have something with fiber. It doesn't have to be a seven-course meal. And matter of fact, you can prepare most of it the night before. Overnight oats, you know, oats with some nut milk or soaked in water with raisins and dates. Add fresh fruit. Put the frozen berries in overnight. You got that ready. Prepare the fruit. Thaw frozen fruit. Cut, get cut up fruit. Buy or cut up the fruit the night before. Have it in a bowl ready to just dish out. Avocado toast for the kids um, and, and a bowl of fruit. Getting the omega-3s, a tablespoon of chia seed, a tablespoon of hemp seed, a tablespoon of flax seed. Put that with a little, you know, put that in the overnight oats. Put it with a little bit of water or soy or almond milk and microwave it for 30 seconds. It makes it kind of like a porridge and then put the fruit on top. Have the toast with jam. So the toast gives you fiber, the fruit gives you fiber, the seeds give you antioxidants. The fruit gives you antioxidants. You get a good source of carbohydrate that's easily absorbed. The fiber keeps you full versus the thought that you need to have eggs in the morning because eggs have vitamins. So if that's the only source of vitamins that you're going to get the rest of the day, yep, there's vitamins in there. There's also choline that interacts with your gut bacteria and it causes inflammation. There's no fiber. People tend to put the salt on the egg or they're going to need some toast with butter or bacon, um, put some cheese on the egg. It all goes downhill from there. Um, people may start out eating a couple boiled eggs, but that's not all they end up eating. And even if they did, again, there's no fiber. There's no omega-3s. And I don't care. You say you feed the chickens the omega-3s. By the time it gets down through the egg, probably very small compared to what you're going to get in a tablespoon of chia flax or hemp. Now you have your attitude set for the day because you had a good meal. You feel good, but you don't feel stuffed. You don't feel tired. You feel good about getting your kids something to eat that 
is healthy. You could even take those overnight oats and you could have made a pancake or a waffle or something like that to have in the freezer and pull out, but something that you've made that's not full of glyphosate and um, a bunch of byproducts that'll last forever, it changes the whole ballgame. Children's behavior and mental attitude is affected by what they eat as well. The gut-brain connection is real. So if you want to start your kids out for success, get them food that's going to lead their gut bacteria to feed back to their brain so that they have a good mental attitude as well. The same way with exercise, if you follow any podcast that talks about people trying to train for an ultra run, they don't get up at 9 o'clock in the morning. They're up at 4 or 3 o'clock in the morning doing some of those long runs. They go to bed early, they get up early. Um, if you want to accomplish those things, if you want to train for a marathon, you know, you have to get up early to get that workout in. It's much better to get the workout in before everybody else is up and around. It's much better to get it over with and you don't have to think the rest of the day or worry about what's going to get in your way. Um, it doesn't um, interfere with family life because you've got that, that done um, before and you don't have to worry about the commitments that you have with your family the rest of the day. The team that wins the Super Bowl this weekend is going to be the team that knows and thinks that they can win the Super Bowl this weekend. They're not going to be hopeful that everything goes right and they get the right call so that they can win the Super Bowl. They're going to believe that they have the ability to direct the outcome of the game. So I would encourage you to direct the outcome of your game with your positive mental attitude. If you'd like to know more about our practice um, and join us uh, to have more of these discussions, please go on over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com, and you can check out our practice. There's multiple ways to join, no matter where you live, no matter what zip code or time zone you live in. If you enjoy this podcast, I would love for you to go over to iTunes and give us a rating so that we can continue to produce this. If you want to support the podcast, I'm all for that too. So there's a Patreon page or you can do our membership page at $25 so you get access to everything we have online. I love that as well. Um, so thank you as always for listening. I hope that you enjoy much health and happiness in your quest to do hard things. Thanks for listening.